We now have a message from Nehemiah. Thank you. Sorry, I prefer to be a bit lower. All right, Jim. Thank you. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you bless this time as we come together, as we uh, listen to your word being proclaimed. Uh, may you stimulate our mind. May you warm our hearts. May we grow to love Jesus more. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You don't have to apologize to me if you fall asleep. Uh, many of you, some, some, not many, some. <laughs> Some always come to me and say, sorry, you, I know I, you look at me, I look at you, I fall asleep. It's okay, please fall asleep if you have to. It's all right. <laughs> I fall asleep too, sometimes listening to sermon. In fact, uh, if I can't sleep, I always listen to sermon. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm really serious. If I can't sleep, I put on me. Because your mind begins to focus on something and you start to drift off and sleep. If you don't, your mind will drift and start to think about many things that you can't sleep. Uh, Nehemiah, there was a story about a missionary who asked a, a new convert. And the missionary asked uh, the new convert, Pablo, if you had a hundred sheep, would you give 50 of them to the Lord's work? And he answered, you know, I would gladly give them to the Lord. And the missionary asked again, said, Pablo, if you have 50 cows, would you give 25 of them to the Lord? And Pablo said, oh, you back. Most definitely so. I would give 25 of my cows to the Lord's work. Definitely. And uh, the missionary asked final question and said, Pablo, one final question. If you had just two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? And Pablo simply said, oh, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. You know, we can all promise God in the abstract, isn't it? We, who can't give million dollars away? Every time I, will, I in my heart, I always say, if I had the money, I'll pay for the building project, you know. Uh, but when I really have the money, would I actually do it? It's, it's always easy to, to promise God in the abstract. Uh, when we don't have, but when you really have two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? That's a good question, isn't it? And today when we come to the book of Nehemiah chapter 10, Nehemiah had come a very long way in bringing them, uh, in returning to Jerusalem, build a wall in 52 days, went through all kinds of challenges, both external, internal oppositions, and lack of resources, and people were discouraged, and they have come a long way. And finally, they have bought their wall built. And then they brought the people together. Ezra took over. And they begin to read the book of uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they recount who God is, how, God great, how great God is, and all this kind of thing. And then they begin to repent of their sin. And then now, in chapter 10, they decided to put things into concrete. They made four promises. They made four vows to God. Say, God, this is what we are going to do. And so I thought we should study chapter 10 
and look out for these four promises that we need to uh, look at when the people come together and made these promises to God. Because many Christians are like that when it comes to spiritual truth. We love it in the abstract, but we don't like it in the concrete. Uh, when truth gets too specific, when it means that I actually need to change, uh, that's going too far. We say, I love mankind, you know, it's people I can't stand. Uh, every Christian is for the spiritual renewal in the abstract. It's a wonderful concept. But when it means that I must actually change the way I think, that I spend my time and money, or the way that I do business, then I think we have gone too far. Some people will say that. And so here, Nehemiah, together with the rest of the people, make four vows. They make four commitment to the Lord. Let me just, uh, Sin, can you help me? I don't seem to be able to move. Four vows, there are four promises they made to God. I'm going to skip verse 1 to 20. You, you don't want to know. You don't want to read as well. <laughs> All the names there, and uh, come down to verse 28 onwards, is when they collectively, as a people of God, made these four promises to God. And the first promise is a general one, and the other three is a bit more specific. The first one is they made, they say, What's happening? First one, submission to God's word. Don't move anymore. <laughs> submission to God's word. The first promise that they want to make to God is, God, now that we have your word, it's being read to us, we will do our best to follow what your word says. They have this commitment to submit to God's word. Look at what it says here. The rest of the people, you can read all the verse 1 to 27, all the names, all the... Uh, started with the priests, the Levites, and the people, and then the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. This is the first one. And all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and, and by themselves, with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. Uh-oh. Can't move again. Let me reverse it. All right. Let me repeat that. All these now join together an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands regulations and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. So the very first promise, first vow that they made to God is, God, we are going to submit ourselves to your word. We're going to follow what your word says. We're going to come under the authority of your word above my own thinking, above my own emotional feelings. I'm going to obey your word. And I think nowadays we exalt reason. Sometimes we either exalt reason or our feelings above the written word of God. We've forgotten that it is God's revealed word. 
that sometimes we cannot trust our own thinking. In fact, John Calvin says, the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. And of course, it's tied to the whole Christian theology that you are born sinners. And when we are born sinners, every faculties of lives are fallen. Not just physically, we will decay and die. Emotionally, intellectually, we can't think clearly sometimes because we are fallen creatures. And the surest way is sometimes to trust God's Word than our own thinking, than our own assessment of things, where pertaining to whether moral issues are concerned, it's always better to lean on the side of the revealed Word of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there can be no doubt whatsoever that all the troubles in the church today and most of the troubles in the world are due to a departure from the authority of the Bible. Because God has designed... They say, but you know what Bible stands for? I heard once before when I was young. B-I-B-L-E. It's a basic instruction before leaving earth. God has given us a manual. And because He designed mankind, He knows what is best for us, way above what we think is best. And so here, the people, the first thing they do is they are going to submit themselves under the authority of God. So of course, we've got to be very careful because sometimes we've got to realize that we, are, we, are, we bring along a lot of presupposition in our interpretation of the Bible. With our experiences, we are colored by many things. And therefore, we can, we can interpret the Bible in the way we want it based on how we feel and based on how we see things. We are colored and bring along our presupposition, our experiences and all that. And therefore, we are not as objective as we like to be in the sense. And so the very fundamental first thing of the scriptures, what does the Word of God mean to the original hearers? What does the author original intend? We've got to think of that first. And then we can bring along other application rather than straight away uh, colored by it. And of course, the scripture, there are, there are some of the things I always tell myself, there are some fundamental, there are non-negotiable things that we are all clear about. And then there's this kind of persuasion kind of things that we can defer. We can choose to defer. Uh, that is why there are many denominations because they disagree on the secondary doctrines. As we all know, Baptists have strong belief in the believer's baptism. But if you go to another denomination, they don't have such kind of stand. And so we've got to be careful on what kind of issues we've got to agree on, what kind of issue we can allow people to have room to have their, their persuasion. As Romans chapter 14, Paul says, you can have your conviction based on your conviction. Uh, so we've got to be careful there. But ultimately, on moral matters, we've got to learn ourselves to come under the authority of God's Word. I like this quote by Karl Bach, the Swiss uh, theologian, uh, one of the finest theologians in the 20th century. He says this, he says, The Word of God is not for sales, and therefore it has no need of strut salesmen. The Word of God is not seeking patrons, Therefore, it refuses price-cutting and bargaining. Therefore, it has no need of middleman. 
The word of God does not compete with other commodities which are being offered to man on the bargain counter of life. It does not care to be sold at any price. It only desires to be its own genuine self without being compelled to suffer alterations and modifications. It will, however, not stoop to overcome resistance with bargain counter methods. Promoters' success are sham victories. They are crowded churches and the breathlessness of their audiences have nothing in common with the Word of God. So the Word of God is not for sales. It has to be what it is. Even it means sometimes it offends people. And it should offend people anyway. And one of the major things in current issue is about the, the same-sex marriage. We often we argue, I think most people argue about same-sex marriage, is that you, you kill people off the romance hope if they don't have it. And we've got to be very careful when we argue that argument. Silly sentence, I'm sorry. Uh, we've got to realize that the most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship. And never had sex. And if we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our Savior subhuman. And we must, be, we must, we must separate self-identity from self Sexual fulfillment. As believers, we have a problem. We should have a problem just with the concept of self-identity. Jesus never put the self in front of identity. Jesus put the self in front of denial. And the reason he did that is not our job to come up with our own identity. It's our job to learn who we are in light of what God says who we are. So our identity in that sense can only be found in Jesus Christ and not in any other sort of things that the world comes up with. So that's the most fundamental argument about, uh, from Christians' uh, perspective about believing and supporting same-sex marriage. You can have the orientation and still be a Christian. And there are many uh, movements in many parts of the world who have this kind of support group uh, over many areas. But the first commitment they make is that we promise that we will submit ourselves under the authority of God's Word. And that's very general, isn't it? So the second, second uh, uh, promise that they make is separation from the world. Not just only submission to God's Word, but they pledge themselves, they make a promise that they are going to separate themselves from the world. Look at verse 30. This is what they say. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to them because there are a lot of intermarriages and uh, God specifically in, the, in the Jewish people in the culture that they are not to do that. And what you re really think about it, separation is simply total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. It's just like when a man and woman get married, they separate themselves from all other possible mates and give themselves completely to each other. And that's the meaning of separation, isn't it? Now, there, this, is not to, this was not about ethnic pride 
or a sense that the Israelite gene pool was superior to that of other peoples. Rather, it had to do with how they worship God and honor God. Wrong relationships can nullify a believer's distinctive witness. And so separate themselves from God, separate from the world. It doesn't mean to say that you are, the Bible says that we are, of the, we are in the world, but we are not of the world, isn't it? It's not to say that we are completely you know, remote and live in our own little nice Christian community, separate from yourself, from other people. And how you do witness? How are we going to be sought and light in this world? We can't. Stephen Covey, in one of his books, uh, says that we've got to distinguish there's two circles. The circle of concern and the circle of influence. He said the circle of concern that we all need to constantly concern about people in the world, loving people, but it is the circle of concern, that, a circle of influence that we need to learn to stay away because we're not going to allow the world to influence you in a sense. So while you're in this world, but you're not of the world, it's a fine line, fine balance, but we have to maintain the kind of distinction. Distinction. Did you know that a lot of religions have some sort of external things to distinct them from other people? Islam, you can either they are growing a beard or, or they have burqa over there. They can't distinct, or Jewish people, you know. There's some sort of external things to to, to stand out that I'm not of this world. But what do you think Christian distinctive, distinctive marks supposed to be? We can't, right? I mean, you go to the street, you go to shopping town, you can't say, oh, this is a Christian, this is a Christian, this is a Christian. How do you do that? There's no kind of external mark to say, I am a Christian. You know? uh, how do you do that? And then Jesus did say, isn't it, in John, he said what? By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So kind of, the kind of love is the, the, the mark of a believer. Number three, Sabbath for God's people. Sabbath for God's people. They submit themselves to God's word. They promise to separate themselves from the world. And the thirdly, it's a Sabbath for God's people. They want to uphold Sabbath day. This is what verse 31 says. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. So after pledging themselves to submit to the Word of God and to live separate lives, the believers renew the covenant with a third vow, the Sabbath for God's people. Now in Nehemiah's time, you must understand it was necessary for God's law about the Sabbath to be clearly understood because the day was set aside to honor God. It was distinctive from other days and given to God so that they might offer their worship to God without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. It set aside a day to honor God. And also, not just only it was set aside to honor God, it was also a day to enjoy rest, leisure, relaxation is a vital ingredient in effective living. 
And I think the Sabbath day was also a day to declare truth. It was like a silent witness. You know, there's a silent witness without having to say things. I often find that Christians sometimes want to defend God too much. Sometimes we don't really have to. There are times God is quite capable to defend for Himself. Sabbath was also a day to declare truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and gave the Israelites multiple witnessing opportunities. To their unbelieving neighbors, it actually proclaimed in a very practical terms the truth that God comes first. God comes first. God comes first. That's a, that's, a, that's a very public way to honor God that God comes first. Today is set aside for the Lord. It's my day for the Lord. It's a witness that God must come first. And of course, rest is essential for all of us. Uh, it's setting aside. I don't know about your congregation. My congregation, we struggle with that. There are many people who, uh, the Lord's Day, they, they will skip church sometime, children party, you know, birthday. When you have four kids, uh, how often do you have a party on Sunday? <laughs> how frequent that would be? And you send your kids to this play group, that play group, this class, that class, and children. How often? Uh, we have uh, Michael Lee, the Korean pastor, used to live next door. Uh, partly because he's a pastor, he always trained the daughter, say, if there's party on Sunday, say no. <laughs> and initially, the daughter protested and all kinds of things. But nowadays, that becomes a witness in her own little community. That's the day for the Lord. Sorry, I can't come. Um, sometimes we find it so difficult to say no to kids, isn't it? But sometimes it's also essential to inculcate and build that kind of values into their life at a very early age. At a very early age. When it's grow too old, it's too difficult. And nowadays there are parents where children literally leave the household. They decide where to eat, where to go for holidays, they decide everything. It's important to train them to make decisions, but if they make major decisions, then we're in trouble. And when they are so used to making decisions at such a young age, when they, when they reach 18 years old, it's very difficult to take, away, take it away from them. I'm talking about my Asian community. Right? <laughs> I mean, your community is, uh, is pretty good. <laughs> uh, you don't spoil children. You know. Asians have this helicopter type of parenting. You know. Follow them wherever they are. Make every decision for them. And so third, third uh, promise that they made is Sabbath for God's people. We're going to set that day aside for the Lord. Now it is the fourth one that has the largest chunk of things that we need to talk about. The fourth one is support for God's work. So submitting themselves to God's word, separation from the world, Sabbath for God's people, and lastly is support for God's work. They come together and say from now on, wall has been built, the service has been erected, law has been read, we are going to play a part now to support the ongoing work, God's work here. And let me just read to you the entirety of the seven verses, 32 to 17, 39, and then I'll give you five very quick sub-points uh, to 
in, in their giving, how they support God's work. This is what they say. They say, we now assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We were going to assume responsibility to make sure that it all happens. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, we have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring the house of our God at set times each year, a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, to the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of all of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithe up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. Verse 39 the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. Now, this is the last sentence, the key one. We will not, together, they, in unison they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. So they come together, pledge that they will support the Lord's work and they list down what they are going to do and then they conclude by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. Timothy Keller, Timothy Keller was a New York uh, Presbyterian minister, redeemer. He's become very popular. Uh, he wrote many books. And he said once that many thinkers and writers have pointed out the culture of greed that has been eating away at our souls and has brought about economic collapse. Yet no one thinks that change is around the corner. Why? Be it is because greed are especially hard to see in ourselves. And he said this, he, Timothy Keller said, he gave a seven-part series of talks on seven deadly sins at a man's breakfast. And then his wife said to him, his wife said, I'll back you, I, I bet with you, okay, that the week that you deal with greed, you will have the lowest attendance. And, and she was right. He, say, he said that she was right. People pack 
in, out for all the other seven deadly sins, but nobody thinks they are greedy. <laughs> nobody thinks that they are greedy. And then he went on to say that as a pastor, he had people came to him to confess that they are struggled with every kind of sin. But he said, I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying I spent too much money on myself. I think my greedy, greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. You see, he has never heard anyone come to him on those terms. And part of the reason is we can't see our own greed. And therefore here, when we come to part of the Christian belief is that God has blessed us and we should use our resources to bless others. To learn to use the wealth, the money, whatever God has given to us for the work of God. And here, let me just give to you very quickly five uh, points in terms of how they go on and support God's word, in terms of how they give to the Lord. The first one is it was a responsible giving. There are two times in these seven verses they said the word, we assume responsibility. We assume responsibility. Do you know how to see someone is a mature person? How much responsibility is the person willing to carry? Immature people never like responsibility. Think about that. Mature, caring responsibility is always a sign of a mature person. Always. It was a responsible giving. Look at verse 32. He said, we assume responsibility. It is now our responsibility, collectively, our responsibility to Support God's work. Our responsibility. The church is not, it's not supposed to be run like a business in the sense it's all of us responsibility. All of us plays a part in ensuring this church continue to minister here in this part of... And, and one of the thing, good things about Baptist is it's very localized. It's, all, it's not centralized. It's your responsibility in the sense of the local congregation to show the responsibility to make it happen. We assume the responsibility. And it also in verse 35, they say again, we also respond, assume responsibility. They own it. And they gave what they own because they saw it as their privilege and their responsibility. So when they give to the Lord, it was a responsible giving. They see that as part of it. We are all in this together. And secondly, it was not just only a responsible uh, giving, it was an obedient giving. It was an obedient giving, spelled out in verse 32, 34, and 36. It was an obedient giving. Look at verse 32, it said, We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give. They just obey what the Word of God said. Did they say, just say that they are going to submit themselves to the Word of God? We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give. And then again in verse 34 and 36, it says it is written in the law. God has been good to His people and generosity was expected from them. 
There was nothing remotely optional about the support of God's work. Everyone was required to give in one form or another. And this was yet another way to demonstrate that God came first in their lives. It was an obedient giving. Uh, it's not about the amount or whatever. Lord, you say so, I do it. And as Christians, we should have this culture, this habit in us to see what we can always do as a blessing to those around us. You know, I, I once went to uh, uh, Kurong to buy some books and then I met a Bible college student um, originally from Malaysia. She had her pile up, her basket, two basket full of books and just piling up like a, like a mountain. I said, wow, it was Christmas time. I said, wow, buying gifts for your for her friends, family. He said, no, no, I'm buying it for Ringwood Library. I noticed that in the library, there are many, very few religious Christian books. I buy all this to donate to them. And in my heart, I was on my way back. I said, what a, what a thoughtful person. He's constantly thinking of ways to, to give beyond. You know, find little ways, sowing seed here, sowing seed there. And just just this wonderful way of learning to obey God in giving. Thirdly, not just only it is a, a responsible giving, not just only it is an obedient giving, it is also proportionate giving. Uh, they were to bring to God's house, sorry, I jumped a little bit ahead. <coughs> the reference to the wood offering suggests that many poor people in Israel had an opportunity to make a gift to the Lord that would demand time rather than money. It was a proportionate giving. The temple needed a regular supply of firewood to keep the sacrificial fires burning and everyone, regardless of income, could gather wood and take it to the temple. And in addition, Israel's sacrificial system recognized that not everyone could make the same kind of offering. If someone could not afford the cost of young bull or a or, or, or lamb or a goat, they can bring what? Dows, right? Didn't Mary and Joseph did that as well? They were not very rich. The rich one will bring bull and cows and all that, but you can bring pigeons. And even in the Bible, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 11, even if you could not afford pigeon, you could bring what? Flour. Leviticus 5, 11, you can even bring that. So it's a proportionate giving. Not necessarily, we're not saying that we will give the same amount or same type of service to the Lord. Everybody at different stages of their life still can contribute in the building of the church. Some can give time, some can give money, some can give their service. We are just uh, uh, about to sign a contract with VED and we have this contract. In the second service, we have one person who is a lawyer. We say, can you read through the contract for us and just to see everything is okay. At least from a legal eyes, you can pick up things that we, we uh, amateur can't. Again, 
proportionate giving. Everybody can give in the way that God has provided or blessed them. Fourthly, it was sacrificial giving. It was sacrificial giving. Not just only responsible giving, proportionate giving, or obedient giving. It is also a sacrificial giving. They were to bring to God's house first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. To offer the first of their crops was to declare that God was the giver of all good things. That everything belongs to Him and that He is worthy of the best we can offer Him. First fruits. Did you ever why we say grace before we eat? It is also an acknowledgement that God, you provide for us. You are our provider. It's an acknowledgement in thanking Him for providing us the most fundamental, basic necessity of food. It's you who gave us. You nourish our physical body. You are the one that nourishes us spiritually as well. So it was a sacrificial giving. <coughs> I think here is a helpful principle. While not everyone can give the same amount, everyone can make the same sacrifice. While not everyone can give the same amount, everyone can make the same sacrifice. Mother Teresa used to say, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. <coughs> but we are living in a culture where we want more. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament professor, uh, wrote a, a journal article uh, and called Love Affair with More. And he said, though many of us are well-intentioned, we have invested our lives in consumerism. We have a love affair with more, and we will never have enough. Consumerism is not simply a marketing strategy. It has become a demonic spiritual force among us. And the theological question facing us is whether the gospel has the power to help us withstand it. Whether the, whether the gospel has the power to help us withstand it. Self-sacrifice. And I believe that Christians need to go beyond until we push to the level of sacrifice. Then we are truly giving. John Stott said, Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulations. If you come to Asian church, maybe here, not necessarily English-speaking Asian church, Chinese-speaking uh, church, or even in Singapore or Malaysia or other parts of the, the Chinese church, because you must understand, we, we, Asian, we are shame culture. You know, our, our faiths are important. Uh, and and sometimes they, they, they even publish how much you give on the inner bulletin. West, $50. Rose, $100. Pastor Bruce, $1 million. They even publicize that. Maybe it's a strategy that they use, you know, to, 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 to their advantage, you know, uh, so that people will give more. I don't know. 
but, but that is how they do. They actually publicize. And some people want it to be known by putting it in an envelope and write your name. And I use it to my advantage too as a salesman when I was, when I was selling encyclopedia. I used to sell encyclopedia. I was door knocking. And one of the strategies that they teach you, because you, it's a shame culture, you, 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 they always teach you that when you present yourself, when you identify who you are, and after you identify who you are, you straight away do this. Untie your shoe and start removing your shoe. They say most likely they'll open the door and let you in. You just assume. Assume. Everything you must assume. They say sales, you must assume. They teach you all this kind of technique. Assume, assume, assume that they are buying. Just assume. Just, just assume. Just take out the order and start writing. Just assume. Those days. Many years ago. You can't do that now. Nowadays, no, nobody lets stranger into a house. You know, but those days are easier in the sense. It was a sacrificial kind of giving that people sacrifice uh, for the Lord. There are many, many people who sacrifice in giving to the Lord. And that shows your priority. That shows your love. And finally, and lastly, it was a comprehensive giving. It was a comprehensive giving. It was a comprehensive giving, verse 36, not just only uh, giving all those responsibilities, obedient and proportionate and, and all that. It was, as it is also written in the law, see how, they obey the, how obedient they are, as it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. They were to not only bring their crops and their money, they were also to bring their firstborn sons and their animals to the Lord. So God is not just interested in our money, He wants our hearts and everything that we have belongs to Him. That's an acknowledgement. It was a comprehensive giving that our entire lives, it belongs to the God. Our, this life here on earth is a gift from God. There was this interesting conversation between a buyer and a seller. The buyer said, I want this pearl. How much is it? And the seller said, well, it's very expensive. But how much? Well, a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Oh, of course, everybody can buy it. Well, didn't you say it was very expensive? He said, yes. Well, how much is it? He said, everything you have. And thinking for a while, the man making up his mind said, all right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have? Let's write it down. Say, well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Well, good, $10,000. What else? That's all. That's all I have. I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Say, how much? Well, let's see. 30, 40, 50, 80, $100. Well, that's fine. What, what else do you have? Well, nothing. That's all I have. Where do you live? Say, in my house. Yes, I have a house. Oh, the house too then. You mean I have to live in my camper? Oh, you have a camper too. Or I'll take that too. What else? So you mean I have to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car. All right. How many? Three. All right. They, they become mine. Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? He said, are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and four daughters. Oh, yes, your wife and daughters too. What else? He said, I have nothing left. I am left alone now. And suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. 
And after the seller pauses for a bit, he concludes. Now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up, because now I am the owner. Comprehensive giving, that our lives belong to you. When you recognize that everything belongs to God, including your life, then it is not too difficult to give up what it is not yours. William Arthur Ward said, Giving is more than a responsibility. It is a privilege, more than an act of obedience. It is evidence of our faith. God prosper us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Martin Luther said, I've tried to keep things in my hands and lost all of them. But what I've given into God's hands, I still possess. Invest in eternity because it's something that will last. Something that will last. Four things, four commitments that they make to the Lord. They want to submit to God, separating from the world, Sabbath rest, and supporting God's work. If you really look, I have no time to go on into detail, but if you look at submitting to God, that answers the question, who is the pilot of your life? When you think about separating from the world, that covers who we spend time with. You think about God's Sabbath for God's people, rest, that deals with how we spend our time. And supporting God's work, which involves how we spend our money. It's pretty comprehensive in many ways in the way that we make investment that really counts for the Lord. May we in our own ways uh, come before the Lord as we begin the building project pretty soon. Uh, may we learn to give uh, to the Lord, to invest in eternity. And I tell you what, I tell you what, in the future, in eternity, you will be so glad you did. You will be so glad you did. Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you that uh, we want to love you not in the abstract. Uh, we will love you in a concrete way. It's easy to make commitment and promises in the abstract. Uh, but we thank you that here is very concrete in the way that we can express our love for you. And may you uh, speak to us. May you uh, bless each one of us as we continue to run this race and with eternity at sight. Help us not to just uh, think of retirement, and, but help us to think of eternity. We need to have more far sight and look at eternity. Invest in what really counts. Thank you, Lord, for many of the people here this morning. They have uh, sacrificed many things for your work in so many years. May you bless them and bless each one of us as we seek to continue to run this race, continue to give of ourselves to you, continue to love people, 
continue to invest and support your work that will outlive all of us into next generation and the next for your work. Thank you, Lord. Amen.